All right. Our Old Testament reading, our Gospel reading, and our sermon text are all actually printed in your song sheets there. So you can follow along. And you know what? I was going to read them out of my Bible, but these words are bigger. I'm going to go with that. (laughs) Uh, The Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 5, verses 10 through 21. And with that, this is similar to what we were just talking about with the kids, but a little bit before that. This is... uh, before the people actually get set free from slavery in Egypt. This is when they are still experiencing the hardships of that. But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word, which you have given to us. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would give us ears to hear that you would give us minds to understand, that you would give us hearts to receive your word into our lives today. Lord, we do ask that this morning you would continue uh, to shape us, inform us by your word and by your spirit into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 5. Uh, verses 10 through 21. It says, Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for the straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, Get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Our gospel reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Did anybody here ever just walk straight into a door? Anyone? 
I hope it was one of those like clear sliding glass patio doors and not like just a wooden one. You just walk straight into it. But maybe it's that too. But typically that happens, right? Where it's a glass door, you think it's open, and you just walk straight into it. Is that fairly common? If you have not done that yourself, have you seen somebody do that either in person or on TV? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, that's fairly common. Um, here's, here's one of my favorites, though was when I saw on America's Funniest Home Videos years ago, and it wasn't a person, it was a dog, and it wasn't running into a door that was closed. It was refusing to go through a door that was open because it thought it was closed. Have you guys seen that one? Oh, it's so great. So it's a like a um, storm door, but they have removed, whether it was glass or screen or whatever was there, and so it's just the frame on the outside. And the dog would go out through the door, which is weird, because it's just an opening, it just goes out through there, and then it would come back to the house, and if the door was closed, it would just stand there waiting for the door to be open. Would not come through, even though it's wide open. And so then they would open the door, and the dog would come in, <laughs> and they close the door, and the dog would go back out through the door again, but then would refuse to come back in because it was convinced that the door was actually closed, even when it was open. Okay, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> but in a little different area. We're actually in the book of Revelation chapter 3, and the reminder that I give every week as we've been going through Revelation is that Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It's the 66th book for a reason, and that is because it has 65 prerequisites that basically if you have not read through the other 65 books of the Bible and have decent understanding and familiarity with those, you're probably going to make a mess of the book of Revelation. Almost every line in the book of Revelation is an allusion, a reference back to something in the rest of the Bible. And there's, I mean, it is just full of that kind of thing. The other thing that uh, Revelation uh, does is takes a lot of uh, the immediate historical context of what was going on to the people that were first receiving these letters, uh, or this letter of Revelation and the messages to the churches, it takes their context and their historical location in uh, to account as these things are being communicated. And so it's not just the kind of words that you can just make whatever you want to out of them. Like there's something there that means something. It's communication on purpose and for a purpose. And where we are so far in this book, here's what's happened thus far. We've got a guy by the name of John who is on an island known as Patmos, and this is out in the Mediterranean Sea over by Asia Minor, and this, he's there, he says he's on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. All right. Presumably, there are two ways that that happens. Either he goes to this island to have this vision, or more likely, he goes to this island because it's getting less and less popular to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. And so he has been forced out and onto this island, where he then has this vision. And in this vision, it is a revelation from Jesus Christ, but it's also a revelation of Jesus. It's a revealing of who Jesus is, and basically gives us this different picture of the whole world. And so you have this you know, things all may look one way, but is that really how they are? Or is there actually something going on behind the scenes that you don't see unless you know that it's there? And that's what this vision gives us is 
you know, from the perspective of the Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire really wants to get across is that Rome is in charge and anyone who is claiming any other kind of authority needs to be done away with. And so, for example, Jesus of Nazareth is claiming to be a king. And so Rome, no, can't do that. And so this is where you had the people in Israel who had the power of the religious establishment, and they're like, he's a threat to us. Let's get rid of him. But they can't do it on their own. So they go get Roman help, and the Romans are like, well, yeah, you can't be claiming to be a king. You can't have that. And so, okay, fine, we'll put him to death. Well, this then continues to be an issue between the people who are following Jesus and the people who are following Caesar. And the people who are following Caesar are saying, Caesar is the Lord. Caesar is the king. He is the one who rules over all of us. And the followers of Jesus are saying, no, actually, Jesus is the Lord. And if you go back to the day that Jesus died, and you say, okay, who's right? Who has the power here? If one person has the power of the sword and the power to say, you get death, and so therefore you die. And this is what Caesar has, and the people who are following him. So like Pilate, who is uh, under Caesar, but is ruling with the authority of Caesar in this local area, he gets to say, Jesus dies. And then, Jesus dies. So who has the authority? Who has the power? And from the Roman perspective, it's clearly Caesar. Caesar has the power Jesus doesn't. And yet, what the disciples keep insisting on is that Jesus actually is a ruler even higher than Caesar. Well, where do they get that? And of course, that comes from things that Jesus said himself even before he went to the cross. Things like, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And so then, if you're looking at the whole thing from this perspective, you're like, wait a second. Jesus didn't go to the cross because of Pilate. Jesus went to the cross because he chose to do that. In fact, he's even in a conversation with Pilate and has this conversation about where power and authority comes from. And Pilate's like, don't you know I have the power to put you to death? And Jesus responds not by saying, yeah, I know. <laughs> he says, you would have no authority if it were not given to you by my father. In other words, the real authority goes beyond the authority of Rome. That Jesus actually is the higher authority over all of it. Okay, so then, why, why else are the disciples thinking that maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about? And that's because on the day that Jesus goes to the cross, it might look like Rome has all the power. Three days later, not so much. As Jesus raises from the dead and goes around continuing to teach and to preach, about the kingdom of God, which is clearly more powerful than anything Rome has to offer. The, the worst that Rome can do is to kill somebody. That's the most power they have. And that's no match for Jesus. So then you look at this and you go, okay, as of the first Easter Sunday, who is it that has the most power? It looks very different, doesn't it? Well, once you have that kind of a shift of uh, the way of seeing everything, it really does change the way that you see everything. And this is what is happening in the book of Revelation, is we're getting that kind of a shift shown to us. 
of there's a way of looking at the world that looks like Rome has all the power. That Rome's way of doing things and exercising their power is, hey, that's just the way of the world. That's the way it goes. And you either get in line or you get killed. (laughs) But that there's actually something else going on. There's something else behind the scenes. And there's this actual contest of good and evil in which case you have not like it's an even match and home we'll see who wins but there's this contest where good clearly is far far more powerful but following uh, the the ways of rome the ways of this world are tempting because they are so much more visibly apparent to us so this is the situation that, uh, that John is in. He's on this island, and he gets this vision that is this revealing of, of who Jesus is and how he really is the one who has all the authority in the whole universe. And he gets this vision in terms that resonate with the whole rest of the Bible. Like, this is not some, well, now we'll uh, try to see it this way because, you know, I guess everything before was wrong, and so now we've got to change it. No, it's everything has been saying this the whole way through, but until Jesus dies and raises again, it's really hard to see. And now, in light of Jesus, this is how uh, John is able to see everything differently and then to help everybody else see everything different as well, including us. And so the first thing that John sees is this vision of Jesus. is one like a son of man. And he's described in terms from the Old Testament that show him as the one who is both God and man, who's human and divine, and who is both priest and king, and who is the one who is the mediator between God and people, but is also the one who is the ultimate authority over everything. This is who John sees Jesus to be. He's revealed as this. And then he's also seen as the one who knows his church who knows the churches of that day and now. We see him, you know, walking among the lampstands, which he actually explains. That's what that means. The lampstands represent the churches. And so as he's walking among them, he knows them. And then the very next thing we get is these messages to these seven different churches in Asia Minor. And last week, we kind of looked at a map of how they go in, uh, in order of where they would have been found geographically. This is the next one that we're looking at now. Each church has been following a similar pattern in the message to that church. Uh, Jesus is described as uh, someone who uh, is over everything um, and the ways in which that might be particularly helpful to this particular church to know. Uh, Secondly is in each of these messages, Jesus says, I know your deeds. That Jesus knows his church. He knows what's going on with them. And then next, we have these two sections that both usually appear, though sometimes one and not the other, but usually we get, here's what you're doing right. I know that you're doing this, and I know that you're, you're doing this well. That's good. Keep it up. And then the other side of that is, but here are some things that you're not doing well. Stop it. (laughs) You need to turn around and turn away from those things. Come back to me. And then each message concludes with, to those who are victorious, to those who continue to stay uh, with me in this and through everything you're facing, here's what's coming in the future 
that is uh, an encouragement and a reason to stay the course. And then it always has uh, the line, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so in this, and this constant refrain, the seven churches representing all churches of all times, and then this message of whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is this is a message that's for everybody. And so as you read each of these messages, there is kind of this, if the shoe fits, wear it, right? Like, you read this, and the parts that apply, apply. And so last week, we looked at the church in Sardis, and it was missing one of the sections. Do you remember which section it was missing? It was missing the section of here's what you're doing well. <laughs> and that was sad. That was really sad. And I said, but hold on if this gets you know too dark, because next week we're going to look at a different church where it's the opposite. And that's what we have here, is we have this message of the church in Philadelphia, and here the one section that kind of is skipped is the Here's what you need to fix. Here's what you need to turn away from and repent of. That's not in this one. This one, it's, here's what you're doing that's good. Keep it up. Let me encourage you. And so, as we hear this message, you'll hear it in uh, in some strange terms, and we'll talk about some of this, and uh, if you want to talk about more of it, find me later. Anyway, this is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Where it says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. We're going to actually kind of take this backwards, and hopefully that'll make sense in a bit. So first, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pay attention to what is being said. Verses 11 through 12 where he says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of putting his name on people and turning people into pillars and what in the world is going on here? And what is going on here is this is, some of the things I've read on this, that Philadelphia is one of those places that was prone to earthquakes. And so what was happened commonly in Philadelphia is, things would start shaking and people would just get out of town. Like that was the safest thing to do is just get out. And then when things would kind of calm down again, then okay, then you come back. It's sort of like living in, uh, you know, on the Texas coast in hurricane season. <laughs> You're just ready. And when it comes, you, you just leave. And then, you know, you come back and rebuild and keep going. And that's kind of how things were in Philadelphia, but with earthquakes, not hurricanes. 
And so they're having to leave home constantly, this constant back and forth. And what it's saying here is that there will come a day in the future in the kingdom of God where you're not going to have to leave home anymore. You will be home. And what this is about, this pillar in the temple of God, this is all about, all this language in this whole section is all about being at home in the presence of God, being identified as his and being people who truly belong with him forever. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. And so I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Yeah, very, very good. This is to the one who is victorious. So that's the one who overcomes, the one who conquers. Well, how do you do that? And that's what uh, this whole book is really about, is how do we overcome these systems of the world and the ways of worldliness that are so all around us? How is it that we follow the way of Jesus when we're facing persecution for following Jesus or when we are facing the temptation to follow the ways of the world instead of Jesus? How is it that we overcome and stay true? And that's what this whole book really is giving us uh, information about and also encouragement in. And it seems like that is what this church is already doing well. However, they're facing some challenges. And skipping back to verse 9, where he talks about those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Yeah, this is another one of those weird things. Uh, it is not that there was a synagogue there in Philadelphia where people were openly Satan worshipers. That's not what was going on. What was going on is you basically had, uh, you know, in the same way that there was this conflict between who is really in authority, is it is it Rome or is it Jesus? In the same way as that, there was also this question of, but who really are the people of God? Who is it that's following the way that God has actually been leading this whole time? And there were, there's groups of Jewish people at the time who were saying, it's not Jesus. That is not the right way. Don't follow him. And uh, it's the same kind of thing as what you had in Jesus's day when he's coming up against Pharisees and the whole Sanhedrin who were leading people away from Jesus. And what the message to this church is, is people who are leading you away from Jesus, they might claim that they are following God, but they're not. The Spirit of God, every time the Holy Spirit shows up through the New Testament, it's constantly pointing people to Jesus. And so when you have people pointing people away from Jesus, he's like, well, let's just call it what it is. They're actually following Satan. I don't care what they say they're following or who they say they're following. That's what this is. This They say they're Jews, but they're lying. They're actually following Satan. And so uh, what it's saying here, though, is hang on. Because I know things are tough because in your community, there are people who are saying, you're not actually following God because you're following that Jesus guy. And he's like, hang on, because one day that will be revealed to be the way of God. And one day that'll be, I mean, it's already been revealed to some. It will be revealed to everyone at some point. And so here we have this time where even repentance for those people will be possible, that they will come and acknowledge that Jesus has loved his people. So continuing to go backwards, verse 8, there's the part that says, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. Well, right before that, he has identified himself as the one who holds the key of David. David, of course, 
as a king of ancient Israel. And this is something that shows up again in Isaiah, where somebody has the key of David. And is pulling all this forward. And basically, it's another reference to Jesus being the one who is ultimately in charge. And so he has the ability to keep a way open, but no one can close. He has a way of closing things. No one can open. If you think back, this sounds should sound pretty familiar. We've already been talking about the Exodus story this morning a little bit. And when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, do you remember how he did that? Do you remember the path that they took? First, he led them around to what looked like a dead end, and then he opened a way that nobody else could open. Right? What was it? It was the Red Sea. Yeah, he opens the sea, and so people can go across. Anybody else going to be able to do that? No. God alone can open this doorway for them to be able to walk through. And then, when the Egyptians are like, oh, well, we'll just do that then. Let's go through there. What happens? He closes what nobody else can then open. And so, and so the Egyptians weren't able to shut what God had opened. They weren't able to open what God had shut. This is what Jesus is saying he has put before the Philadelphians. There is an open door before you. So the question is, uh, what is that door? I think it is two things, primarily one. So I think, first of all, it is this, it is the way of salvation. And so just like what we see with the Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt, to go through this Red Sea pathway, that is the way of salvation. And Jesus has opened that way up to us. This is one of the things that we see throughout the Gospels with Jesus' death and resurrection in Matthew, I believe it is, where the, the temple curtain is torn in two when Jesus dies on the cross, opening that way for us so we have relationship directly with God through the death of Jesus. Like, this way has been opened for us. When he's talking to his disciples before he dies, and they're like, well, we don't know where you're going. How can we? And he says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so I think this is part of what he's talking about, is that he is the way, he is this open door, this access to God the Father that is for everyone. And in that, I saw somebody post this the other day. Rich Viotis posted uh, this short little post that just said, the story of Scripture in four phrases repeated throughout its pages are as follows. I love you, I am with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. That's pretty good, right? And I'm sure, you know, with each one of those, you want to elaborate and say more on it, but as a basic overall summary, there you go. It is, I love you, I am with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. And I think this is the first meaning of this open door that he's put before them. And this way is available. But I think primarily what this is actually about is it's a door of opportunity. We see this language used this way throughout the New Testament, this door of opportunity to spread the message of Jesus to other people. That's what this is about. And here's what's crazy, is it might seem in Philadelphia at the time when people are being persecuted, when you've got the Romans that seem like they're against you, you've got the Jewish synagogue that seems like it, it's against you, so like everywhere you turn, you're like, I don't know, maybe maybe there is no opportunity to tell people about Jesus, because it seems like every time we do, we're at risk of getting killed. 
what do we do? Maybe we just, we'll just shut up. That's what we'll do. We'll just stop saying anything to anyone. We'll not let them know about Jesus. And we'll just have our own little group together. Does that sound like a good plan? From a worldly perspective, of course that sounds like a good plan. Yeah? We'll just protect me, protect us, protect ours, and forget about the rest of the world. There's a problem with that. Huge problem with that. And that is, well, what Jesus has called his people to do. <laughs> and so if you think back when Jesus is first calling some of his disciples and he's calling these fishermen, and remember what he says? He says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? Or various versions of that depending on your translation. And that's the idea. He's going to make, and I will uh, make you fish for people. Like, that's what you're going to do. You're going to be out there fishing for people. A lot of us seem to have forgotten that. A lot of people take it as what we're supposed to do is, and I will make you not fish for people and do something entirely different. People, I will make you, uh, you know, warriors for a cause, or I don't know what, but something totally different than fishers of men, which is actually what Jesus says. He then, um, he sends them out after his resurrection, even, to make disciples and to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded them. This is what we've been sent to do. Make disciples. It's, it's the same thing as what he said at the beginning. That we're to be fishing for people. To help other people follow Jesus. Come to know him and be able to follow him. And that's what we're supposed to be about. And the Philadelphian church has been doing this. But right now it seems like they might be at the point of going, I don't know, maybe we should not. Maybe we should do something else. And what he's saying to them is, that door is not closed. And so this is where we get back to that dog that I was talking about earlier. <laughs> that it's almost like the, the door of evangelism, of being able to tell people about Jesus, is wide open, and they're standing there like a dog going, I don't know, I, I, this, I, I think this door is closed. I would hate to run into a closed door. I'll, I'll just stand here. That's what I'll do. I'll just stand here. And it's like, no, it's open. <laughs> it is open, and nobody can close that. And so no matter what kinds of things they're facing, that continues. You hear about underground church in places like Iran and in China, where it seems like conditions are absolutely the worst for spreading the good news of Jesus. And you know what happens there? The good news of Jesus is still spread. Like that is a door that stays open. People cannot close that door of opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And then there's this. This is from something Max Lucado wrote. I found out from a guy, Daryl Johnson. Anyway, Max Lucado said that he one time, uh, his dad took him and a friend fishing, but when they went to go fishing, it just rained and snowed the whole time, and so they spent the whole week cooped up in a camper truck, bickering and griping. Anybody been there? That sounds pretty familiar, right? But here's what Max Lucado writes about that. He says, I learned a hard lesson that week. Not about fishing, but about people. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. 
rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. The result? Church scrooges. Bah humbug spirituality. Beady eyes searching for warts on others while ignoring the warts on the nose below. Crooked fingers that bypass strengths and point out weaknesses. Split churches. Poor testimonies. Broken hearts. Legalistic wars. And sadly, poor go unfed. Confused go uncounseled. And lost go unpreached. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. So, the next time the challenges outside tempt you to shut the door and stay inside, stay long enough to get warm, then get out. <laughs> when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. We are called to fish. This is what Jesus has said about his disciples. And so, in Colossians chapter 4, speaking of an open door for this sort of thing, here's uh, what Paul writes. He says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. I don't know what your conversations with outsiders look like these days. I don't know if you're having conversations with people outside the church these days. But you should be. We should be. And when we're having those conversations, let's not forget that these conversations may also be the very opportunities that we ought to be praying for, to be able to spread the good news of Jesus with those who need to hear, to be able to facilitate new relationships with Jesus. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Grace. Is that what your conversation's full of? I hope so. Sometimes we may feel like the doors of opportunity have closed. Things now aren't like they used to be, and if only we could go back to there, then we'd be, have the opportunities. The door of opportunity to share the good news of Jesus is not something that we create, but it is something we can make the most of. A door of opportunity is something that is opened by Jesus. It's our job to recognize it for the opportunity that it is, and it's our job to make the most of it. But we can't open it. We can't close it. And part of the good news is no one else can close it either. So let's continue to look for the open door before us and to make the most of the opportunity we have to be disciples of Jesus who are fishers 
for people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word, which you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that you put before us. The opportunity to come to you through Jesus. The opportunity to uh, let others know about your love for them too. God, we pray that you would help us to stay on mission as your church. That those you have called to fish would be those who fish. And God, we pray for those in our lives and in our communities who do not yet know you. Who do not yet know the love that you have for them. God, we do pray that you would reach them with your message, with the good news of Jesus. God, help us to recognize that we might be the means that you are using to reach them. Help us not to miss those opportunities. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Made us not the temptation. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.